Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Today, I am in conversation with Hendrik Esser, a senior transformation expert, coach, driver and catalyst with more than 20 years of leadership experience at Ericsson. He is also internationally active in communities advancing business agility across industries. In this conversation, he talks about his understanding of software work as art and the importance of craftsmanship. And to become an artist, how you need to transcend what you've learned and move to express yourself creatively. We also talk about working in international teams, the impact of diversity in a team to generate breakthrough ideas and what he derives from playing an active part in communities and a lot more. Listen on. Welcome to the Software People Stories, Henrik. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Same here. We usually start our conversations with the origin story of our guests. So if you can share how you got into IT, what is the interest and what you've been doing all these years, that could be a starting point for our conversation. Yeah, okay. Oh, wow, where should I start? <laughs> I could start when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know how much of history you want to have there. So, but um, I mean, one thing looking back now, it's clear to me, I was always an engineer at heart, you know? I. Already as a kid, I was loving to construct stuff. I was all the time playing with paper, gluing things together, creating stuff with Lego bricks and stuff like that. So somehow making something that other people can use and enjoy was always deep inside of me. So yeah, in in the 80s, I discovered computers. A friend of mine, he got a computer as a gift from his father. And this was in the 80s, the the interesting, cool thing. And uh, him and me, he was my best friend. Um, uh, we we spent I don't know how many hours first playing computer games then we thought oh maybe we can program those games ourselves so we, we we created some computer games and then I was lost into the world of computers so then it was relatively straightforward when I was finishing school I was thinking what do I study and I was a bit torn apart between computer science and electrical engineering and I felt like hmm, computer science I know already a lot of programming in my mind at that time Computer science was mostly about programming and algorithms and so on. And then I actually chose um, electrical engineering because it was the less logical choice (laughs) I wanted to get a bit higher bandwidth. But then in the electrical engineering, I was focusing on communication protocols uh, in my studies uh, and so on. And then I I somehow got back to computer science and IT (laughs) via that. So that's how I ended up in IT. It's um, a quite long journey, but it was always there somehow. Yeah, it's interesting because in those days, when I studied engineering as well, there was no computer science. It was called electrical communication engineering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whether it is power engineering or communication engineering, you have all these devices talking to each other, low power electronics. Yes. And then, of course, then there was software. Like you said, yeah, programming was what was there. Yeah before it got formalized into computer science. There was was one thing that was totally mind-blowing for me in the 80s, and that was, I was as a volunteer, I was uh, doing, um, after the school had finished, we had a 
one teacher who was really into computer science and so on. And this was very extraordinary in the 80s. So, and there were like five of us uh, who were then together with him exploring a bit more. And we had an interesting Lego-like electrical system where you could build a microprocessors out of gates and, and LEDs and so on. And so th there was an instruction how to build a little microprocessor um, out of these pieces. And we got it working. And at that time, I thought, I'm going to become a microprocessor engineer. <laughs> and uh, so my world is, uh, of computers actually started pretty much with the hardware and microprocessor uh, dimension. And it's still something I'm following today. It's a fascinating world. Um, I'm so amazed what's possible uh, nowadays in this area. Yeah, absolutely. One interesting question triggered by what you said about computer science. Mm -hmm. The area of software, we call ourselves software engineers mm -hmm. and software engineering. Then there is computer science and others say programming is an art <laughs> or it's a craftsman. It's craftsmanship. So what is your take on it? How, how have you perceived this and how do you mm -hmm. internalize this? Yeah, for me, yeah. Okay. For me, in the end, it's it's, it is an art. In the end, it's an art, like any craftsmanship thing. And why I think that, I mean, you need to, have to, to master something. You need to have a talent, of course. You need to have a talent for these kind of things. And talent requires an interest and some core abilities uh, to capture an area. But then you need to develop that um, talent into a, a mastery. And then you're maybe an engineer. When you're mastering the thing, you become an, an engineer and you can do a lot of things. But then there's one level more, and that's when you become an artist, when you're more or less transcending from everything you have learned and you can create new stuff and you're quite freely moving in your, your art, you could say. So I think maybe all these definitions might be correct, but it just depends on what kind of a person you are. So, um, and I, I actually went in, in software development, I went from engineering through mastery to being actually an artist a bit in, in the domain of C++ programming, but then I lost it all again because <laughs> I, I didn't practice programming for quite a while when I entered the management career. <laughs> yeah. So how has your career progression or transitions been? Yeah. yeah, as I said, I mean, um, for me, I became an engineer or I went into the telco industry because my dream is to enrich the world, to make the world a better place, to fix things or to invent new things that delight people and make life better. So that's a bit like my, my deeper motivation. So um, I was totally fascinated by technology and the possibilities and technology. And then I come into Ericsson, this giant company in the telecommunication domain. And then another element became clear to me, and that is, um, yeah, well, we only achieve this through people. And then I, I, I felt like, yeah, I want to work also with people. I want to enable people to create all these fantastic things. So I became interested in a management career. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit funny um, about how long was it? One and a half years into my career, uh, there was a job opening for a group manager position. So then, then you are the line manager of something like 15 people at that time. And uh, I thought like, yeah, I want this. I really want this. So um, I, I applied for the job, but I was so green. You know, I, I just was relatively fresh from the university. I knew nothing about how to manage people and so on. But I was full of, of ambition and full of, yeah, also uh, passion about this. 
So I got into the interview um, and of course they told me, well, you have, they saw my potential. They said, yeah, you have absolutely, you have the potential, but you're absolutely not there yet. But um, let us give you an advice. So, and that was maybe the best advice I got that early in the career, uh, that the department manager of that department said to me, I really see your potential and um, we will help you developing there. But before you become a line manager managing people, first go into a more operational role. We, I recommend you to go into the project management career first, learn all the operational inside outs first before you go into a people management job. And I think this was one of the best career advice early in my career because um, he was so right as I found out later. So I became first a technical coordinator, which was the technical side of project management and then a project manager later, and then the project office manager. And then I was ready for it. <laughs> Very interesting. So two broad questions that come to my mind. Mm. One is that in Ericsson or in telecom, even though we say software, invariably it is all about this software running in some hardware, which may be in some mm. remote location, etc. Yeah. So in terms of say, your own orientation of creating those kinds of solutions. After graduation, how did you internalize this? And then I'll ask the second question a little later. Mm. Yeah, you mean, I mean, for me, actually, this step into a professional company, especially in the telco industry, like you say, everything runs on servers and so on. My origin, as I explained earlier, was a bit from the computer gaming area. And computer gaming is a wonderful thing to learn software development on because you program a little, you have a graphical output, a sound output, and so on, and you immediately you have your feedback. Yeah. And at the very early days, I did this in, in actually the programming language BASIC, which is horrible for, uh, for many who, and I did horrible things <laughs> when I look at that code, terrible, but I learned it uh, through this, and it was a lot of fun to learn it, and that was the most important thing. But then entering into a company like Ericsson or starting already in the university to deal with the telecommunication protocols actually not, don't have graphical output and nothing and everything becomes so indirect. Yeah? So first of all, you need to compile something that was not there in basic. You would program a little, press run, you immediately have your feedback. Wow, it works or no, it doesn't work. Where is the, the error? No, now you needed to compile. And that took a while, especially in the 80s when the computer machines were not so fast. And then um, you, you let it run. And you need to have a lot of debug outputs to see what's actually happening in the processes. So you learn about the debug processes, you learn how to observe things a bit more indirectly and so on. And that was actually quite a shift for me to, to learn it, it, it this way. What keeps me going at least was always understanding what's the purpose of this piece of software. I mean, it's not like just some protocol signals going from one telecommunication node to another. That's what's actually happening. But it's more like the general idea, okay, what we are enabling now is, for example, I was for a while programming software in, in, in the handover uh, procedure between, on mobile networks. So uh, you, you go through your mobile from one cell, radio cell to another cell, and you, of course, don't want to drop the phone conversation. So, and I was working on that software and I was thinking like, yeah, that's, that's the benefit of it. That's the, the, the users will enjoy that there is no interruption. They don't hear any dis uh, disturbing noise and, and so on. So that kept me a bit going. <laughs> on this very indirect world of <laughs> doing software. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting view. So we normally talk about software development as a team sport. Now from the oh, creative yes. side, 
But then the way you describe the image that was in my mind was even the software pieces probably coming from different teams, different generational technologies, they're all working together. But that, that was another shift that has happened in my career, this understanding. I mean, also here, I always see how software development has evolved over the decades. I mean, we maybe I don't know exactly your age, but probably we're in a similar age. So we maybe grew up in a world where the computer was the machine in front of you and you had full control over the thing. So the first computer I had, I could read the operating system A to Z. I know exactly what this machine was doing. I had a total control over that machine. Then, then I came to the university and then you had already these networks. So I could log into a machine on the next room, which was very spooky for me in the very beginning because I thought, oh, this is interesting. What can you do? And you can even spawn a process over there. And nowadays, I mean, uh, cloud systems are there. You don't even know where your compute resources are and, and all these things. Everything has completely been virtualized, containerized, cloudified. And so has also the way we work with this stuff. Because in the 80s, I, as a one person, I could write a piece of software. I was in full control of the thing. And maybe if it was a bit more complex thing, I, I had a friend joining me. Or in the university, I was working with four other people on a piece of software. That was about the scale. Nowadays, with all this parallelism, uh, with modern software technologies, where you can uh, work in a much more structured way with object orientation and, and everything, microservices, you, you can... We have parallelized software development. I mean, this is, when we think back, it's so hyper-productive compared to what we had in the 80s. It's amazing what can be done in no time. And then we have all these libraries, open source. I mean, in the 80s, everything you wanted to do, you needed to do yourself. So you were programming every little piece. You had full control, but you also had to do everything yourself. Nowadays, programming is so much about knowing in which library do I need to look <laughs> and finding the function that you want to use and, and using that function. And of course, that comes with the price that um, you don't know what quality that library has. And you cannot be 100% sure that from a security point of view, that library is 100% is secure. So there is new challenges that have arised uh, from, uh, be, have been arising from this way of, of uh, working with software. But it's really not only anymore a team sports, I think, it's, it's even almost a societal sport. <laughs> There's so many islands of teams working on stuff and all their stuff is coming together and you can do fantastic things and prototype in no time. Yeah, see, that is also a related question is uh, your own transition from this initial individual contributor or working on these small problems mm. to at a societal scale. Yes. And your transition of being more of an engineer to a manager when probably you had to deal with so many moving parts, so many ambiguities. And of course, I'm assuming that probably different cultures because these teams being oh, yes. across the globe. So how has that transition been for you? That's, um, yeah, uh, that's also one of these fascinating things. And there I'm so grateful also to work in, in this large company because, um, so first of all, I came into the company and already at that time, the little site that the company had founded here in, in Germany, in the most western city of Germany, Aachen, this site was brand new, more or less. It, it has just, had just existed for two years, and it was a new site for, for this company. And because it was a new site, they needed to make sure that the students that they hire 
that they get a proper education, that they are well landing in the company because you want to have your company culture here and, and all this stuff. So there was a lot of expatriates from other countries okay. building this up. And that was actually quite interesting. I think just half a year into my career, we had something like people from 50 different nations in this place. Wow. And, you know, the world is so full, even today, the world is so full of prejudices and, and stereotypes, how people are from this part of the world or that part of the world. And the only way to overcome this is by working with these people. Because what I learned over this career and being the manager of people from different nations, working and traveling uh, to Ericsson sites in, in different countries, you learn that people are more or less the same everywhere. It, it's uh, mankind. It's such a lovely uh, bunch of people, actually. And, and then we are all struggling with the same things. And then, of course, we have our own cultures and religions and all this, this stuff. But under the surface, I think we are all the same. And that's just wonderful this, to discover this. And with all the sameness, we have these cultural differences, the difference in, in upbringing and perspectives. And that makes also innovation so rich in, in the end, because everybody brings their own yeah, cultural background also to the table. And if we are tolerant and not getting annoyed by others, but rather say, oh, this is disturbing me. A disturbance is an invitation for learning. Uh, so what did I not get? Or what's the new thing here? Why is this disturbing me? Then often you find surprisingly beautiful things behind uh, stuff. So this has been a bit also my journey to, to see different cultures and to the more people I met from different countries and the more I worked together with them, created things together with them, the more I saw the beauty of co-creation with people with very different backgrounds. Are there any techniques or practices that have helped you in handling these kinds of situations? This is one of those. I mean, first of all, you need to be open and, and curious. And uh, what I learned also that is that, that people who are just curious, <clears throat> who are open, who are not totally um, <clears throat> living inside their own ego all the time, or who get upset easily. And so if you're open and curious and want to explore, then you can achieve miracles. And then, of course, on the way how you want to explore, there is a million techniques and so on. And I think one thing, I, I've been on the spearhead of the, the agile movement uh, or agile transformation in Ericsson and agile approaches, design thinking, and there is a, quite a number of other approaches. They help a lot um, to bring people together and, and let them work together. So, yeah. So do you have any stories of a wow moment or maybe wow moments when you brought teams with diversity together? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, let me think that there are a number um, of, of such situations. So um, one thing was um, we were in, when was that? In the early 2000s, we had a really big problem because we were sitting on an old piece of hardware and software. And um, more and more, uh, we saw the limits of that hardware. So we needed to really make a shift to boost the, uh, the capacity of our telecommunication nodes, the computing capacity. And at that time, there was more and more miniaturization. Um, the computers, the, the CPUs became stronger. So there was a tendency there. The software technology uh, became stronger in certain aspects. And we had a big debate about this. And then we said we need to find a way how to really overcome these 
capacity bottlenecks that we have in our system. And for that, you need to have a very free thinking. So uh, we were assembling one of these cross-cultural, cross-organizational teams, and we were really locking ourselves into a room and, and... It was so difficult because this was a tricky, tricky uh, technical problem. But with all these people coming together, and they were from different countries uh, with different experiences, within two days, we had a fantastic base idea how we could crack that nut. And then everybody went and uh, tried out with some mini prototyping for themselves. Then we came back again and so on. So this was a wonderful team experience of First being in one room, discussing on the whiteboard, really arguing tough with each other, disagreeing on, on the direction, but then in the end finding this, yeah, okay, now we got it. Um, this was for the whole team a wonderful moment, I think. Yeah, that's very nice. So how have some of those practices changed because of this pandemic and the forced dispersal of teams? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think the foundation is is still there, but um, of course now everything is online. Um, and I've been always a great fan of having um, sessions in in a meeting room, ideally with whiteboards from the floor to the ceiling and and movable furniture and and so on. So we we have some a few of these rooms in, in the company and. Um, workshops in these rooms have always been super enriching. So this, of course, was not not possible anymore. So we went online. And uh, of course, we are using whiteboarding tools and yellow sticky, virtual yellow sticky exercises and so on. And my experience is that you can go quite far with these tools as well. But uh, there is maybe two things which are important. One thing is when you do this with people that you knew before, it's much easier if there is already a trust base. And building a new team is a bit more difficult now uh, during the online times. Although I would say slowly we are learning to do this faster, but in the beginning, this was really tricky to be innovative with a new team. The other thing is in these creation workshops, is a significant part of those were that we had actually breaks where we would go to the coffee machine and, and then we would stand by the coffee machine and now our brains would relax because we're now we are not in the room anymore. We are in a different context. We are relaxing a bit and we have a chat. And sometimes in the coffee corner, the, the interesting ideas came up because we were just relaxing. <laughs> or we would meet because we would be have been flying into one place uh, for a couple of days. Uh, in the evening, we would meet in a restaurant and, and we would have this. These kind of things don't exist anymore. And... At the moment, I feel that creativity is not as good as it was before, but maybe it's just that I'm still biased towards the old world <laughs> and maybe it's just changing. So I'm still puzzled about it, um, but this is one of the challenges um, I have been seeing. Yeah, in fact, I've heard this from many others also, that mm -hmm. while you switch from one context to another, one meeting to another, one team to another, you are yeah. still sitting at home in the same place. This environment doesn't change. So it kind of imposes some probably mental blocks. So one thing which I try to do is, I mean, my table is not very organized at all. But <laughs> even in the disorganization, it is a different disorganization every time. Every mm -hmm. couple of days, you just take away things that are there and then put something else. Or at least mm -hmm. when you look out the window or do something else, at least gives a slightly different feeling. Yeah. of uh, being in a different environment. Yeah, I, I can fully relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, extending that, now, you 
are also very active in the community the professional communities mm-hmm. one is the how have you gained from that and two with this again limited opportunity for face to face networking how has that impacted so first of all i mean this whole thing started for me around 2012 2008 we, i was part of a leadership team uh, of a 2000 people organization that went into an agile um, transformation in the beginning we didn't call it even agile uh, only on the journey we thought like okay agile that's that's what we want yeah. and uh, we i always say we were accidentally successful <laughs> we we did a couple of things really right and only later we understood why it was right what we were doing and because we i'm working for a large company i was asked to maybe um, share these experiences at the conference and then i spoke at the first conference and the second conference i i met a lot of interesting people and that was an eye opener for me all of a sudden networking started to happen i was before that i was not so much into networking i was always getting along with people and uh, learning getting to know new people was not a problem for me but then on a conference where we have like minded people coming together it's a completely different thing so i meet all these interesting people i get invitations to more conferences i get invitations to um, work groups and so on and this was such an enormous boost of learning for myself but also advancing um, uh, things and, uh, i mean i could share my experiences with in uh, in that case agile transformations others was sharing their experiences uh, i understood where are the limits of my understanding and i could enhance my understanding um, uh, quite a bit in these sessions and so we had i'm um, for example one of the things i'm doing i'm on a voluntary base working for the agile alliance i'm uh, running an initiative that's called supporting agile adoption and what we do is once a year we have a, a weekend workshop a face to face weekend workshop where we are coming together a small team of you could say lead thinkers i hate this word it's people who have different perspectives um, and we come together and we discuss what's the state of agile what what tendencies and trends do we see and then we work have a workshop over the weekend discussing okay what could we give to the community what could we uh, do in in conferences and so on so the interesting thing is that now this taught me because we only met once a year face to face and in between we were starting to write articles for example so via that i learned how to write articles and uh, stuff like that with people online and that actually survived quite well into corona because now everything is virtual and we still keep going uh, with writing articles so that's also in a collaborative way yes yeah i was just reading one of your recent posts on the agile alliance thing about budgeting and uh... Oh yes. <laughs> Actually, how do you reconcile these two schools of thought or expectations? On one hand, we say agile is very empirical, we need to experiment, you need to learn, you need to improve and all that. Mm. But in a corporate environment, mm. most of the time either because of the investors or stakeholders or market or customers, yes. there is an expectation of being predictable. Yes. And saying that can you upfront say that this is what will happen on this day or this time or what we will actually create and all that including how large should the team be what are the other funds that i need to commit to the budgeting and other aspects. Yeah. So how do you reconcile these two different expectations or this is exactly what uh, 
an agile transformation is about in the end embracing uncertainty so you're hitting the nerve of of any agile transformation and this was maybe the first thing you know I was a project manager. I was a project office manager. I was living in this world of trying to predict things that are not predictable. And I was living in this fake world of, of creating certainty where there is no certainty. And we, we had these giant projects where we had a, a change request procedure. So it was a formal procedure. You want a change? You need to fill in a template and send this to the total project. Then the total project will send it to the main projects and the main projects will send it to the sub projects. And all of them need to do an analysis, write it down, bring it back to the main project, back to the total project. And after three months, we can maybe take a decision whether that change from the customer is acceptable. It's a change fighting procedure. So, and, and because we had like, 250 of those per project, you can imagine the administrative overhead we had. So yeah. that was one of the triggers of our agile transformation. So what we understood is, wait a second, change is the norm. When the project plan works out exactly as we thought, it's the abnormal case. We have optimized our whole setup for the abnormal case and all the time we are writing exemptions. So we need to turn this around. So how do we reconcile this? Yeah, well, we have customers who are asking, when can we have this feature? We don't get around that because our customers want to plan their budgets. They want to know when they can plan their part of the project and so on. And because of that, we need to predict. Now, how do you predict in an unpredictable world? And the answer is, and that, that took me actually quite a while to really embrace it. You know, you learn Agile and you all of a sudden say, Agile is the solution to everything. <laughs> Today, I would say agility is, is the answer and not agile because agile is just embracing uncertainty in one way, but not everything on the planet is totally unpredictable. So actually, a waterfall approach still makes sense when you have a lot of predictability. And so you need to look when you are planning something, when you try to forecast and, and predict things, you often you have a body of experience from the past. Maybe the system that you have been developing on, your software system, it's not like it's completely new. You are not a startup anymore. When you're a startup, you cannot predict, then I would just explore as fast as possible and create learning. But when you have done it for a while, there is a certain ability to compare, okay, this new functionality that we should put in, what we see right now from a complexity point of view, it's similar to this piece we did in the past. Now we can look into the data, how much effort was it in the past of that comparable feature. So you, by comparison, you can make a rough guess, okay, we are in that ballpark figure. And, by, and this is a different way how to estimate. And um, how we worked with this, because there's a lot of risk in there, we were starting, for example, in my area to use ranges. So instead of saying this functionality we will deliver is on the 7th of September, 9 a.m., which is a precisely wrong estimate, we, we started to say things like we will deliver this between mid of July and end of November. So a range. And with every sprint, we would re-estimate the range by the team because the team has learned something. And if the range is shrinking, it's a leading indicator that we are on track with what we expected. If it's uh, growing or shifting, then something is different than we thought. And then we have a leading indicator that helps us, okay, what can we do now? What can we tell to the customer? So techniques like these are able to reconcile this world of people who actually want to have a prediction with the world of, 
it's hard or sometimes impossible to predict. That sounds fairly simple. I'm sure it's going to be complex to... Actually, it is, it is simple. Uh, that, that's the funny thing. It is more simple than people think. Uh-huh. They just, you know, creating a guarantee is such a comforting thing. Hmm. You know, uh, people want to know when is this going to be ready. And uh, that's also what I see still in many companies that the leadership is in the end, I think they are just afraid of uncertainty because uncertainty is uncomfortable. If I can't, people are asking me and you are a leader when you have, when you can firmly say, I'm going to do this by that and that date. And you need to look so totally serious in your face and you need to look totally convinced about what you're saying now Uh, because you don't, you want to get rid of the pain of the argument of, uh, I'm not 100% sure um, we might be a bit delayed. And that's what these ranges, for example, do. When I tell you we will deliver between mid of July and end of November, we might have a conversation of, you might say, but you're aware that the customer needs it in September. And then I would say to you, yes, I got that. And I'm working towards September, but our current best knowledge is this range. And then we would rather start a discussion. Okay, how can we reduce the risk? How can we make it rather uh, September or July even uh, than uh, letting it slip into November? And you have a constructive discussion and you embrace the uncertainty instead of fighting it. That's good. I didn't realize that uh, we've been talking for quite a while. Uh, <laughs> Time flies on you. Yeah, fine. <laughs> absolutely. I usually like to get our guests advice for mm-hmm. two segments of professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, one those who are considering a career in IT, typically students or probably who are in some other industry and then want to look at IT. And the second is more for what may be called as the mid-career crisis. Yes. <laughs> I've done this now. Should I do more of this, something else? Or should I do completely something out of IT, etc.? So mm-hmm. from your experience, what you've seen, are there any suggestions that you have for these mm-hmm. two sectors? So when, when you want to go into IT, or actually it's almost worth anything you want to do don't do it because you think this is a place where you can earn lots of money let not money be the 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 motivation money might be the consequence of this you can earn a lot of money in the it industry but really just do it if you are um, passionate about passionate about technology I think a passion for technology is, is, is the absolute requirement. Because if you're not, um, this, you will not serve the planet or the people um, or yourself even. Uh, you will create strange things. So passion for technology is very important. But with that passion, go and, and, and conquer the world, <laughs> explore the world and just dive into things. So that would be my strongest advice. And then, yeah, just get going stay curious and team up with others. That's maybe the second big advice I would give to younger people who are considering this. Like you said, Shiv, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a team sport. So um, there are some social skills you need to develop as well. And that doesn't mean you need to be um, the super hero in, in communicating, but being able to collaborate with other people, probably from other countries from around the world, is super important. And there are these wonderful opportunities today. I, I have, I know a lot of young people who are collaborating with people in other countries. So the chances are very good to just explore yourself in that domain. So yeah, that, that's uh, what I would say uh, to, to young people. Then the mid-career crisis. 
okay, how, how does how does your life look when you're in the mid-career crisis? Probably um, you have advanced your career to a certain extent. You were young and you were hungry and now you are somewhere. <laughs> and you are at the limit of where you can go, baby. And you're feeling like all of a sudden, out of all the growth that you had in your career path, uh, you don't get further and you might get frustrated. Okay, I was thinking to become... I don't know actually what I wanted to become. Maybe I wanted to become the CEO. It was clear for a while that I will not be the CEO, but now I'm where I am and what now. And maybe uh, also privately, the situation is that uh, your kids are growing older and they leave the house and, and somehow your life starts changing and you, you're puzzled about what now. So my, my advice would be, first of all, relax. <laughs> you're not alone. <laughs> Everybody is entering into such a phase at some point in time and start enjoying uh, things. So what, what is important in, in that uh, phase is, first of all, instead of go up, go broad. If you haven't started that already, go broader. In my case, for example, I was working for a long time in, in R&D. Um, and now I'm more and more working with marketing and communications as well, and service delivery and, and other professions. I started to look into finance and so on. And I'm enjoying so much all the things I learned in R&D, the creative methods, um, the, the patterns and so on. And I, I can start seeing they can be also applied in adjacent areas. So I can see now with all the experience I have gained, I can bring that experience to other domains and in these other domains, I'm learning something, I'm giving something, I'm learning something, and all of a sudden I'm growing more and more. So I would actually recommend people to overcome the crisis by just staying curious, going into other areas and contribute and learn. That's at least what keeps me going. And that's, that's such a joy. Yeah, that's a very powerful message. Of um, We talk about uh, the S-curves, after some time, you need to go to the next X curve and the transferable skills that you've indicated. That it is not like you're starting from the scratch. Look yeah. at how you can bring more value to this new environment or whatever. Yeah, yeah very powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's funny things like nowadays we talk about DevOps and continuous integration and software pipelines and so on. And people are, with my experience, for example, like I said in the 80s, basic programming. I, I do a little bit of code. I press run. I see whether it's working. This was continuous integration, <laughs> continuous feedback. So what we do nowadays is trying to bring the 1980s feeling back of, I write a line of code. How long does it take until I know I get the feedback, whether this is working and doing what I wanted to do uh, with it or not? <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. So, you know, patterns. <laughs> Good. In fact, that was one of the motivations for me to have this, these kind of conversations. Mm. Some of us have probably gone through some of these things in different technology environments, but you find that similar challenges are faced by people, maybe different set of technologies, so that yeah. sharing your experiences, I'm sure your experiences are going to trigger some thoughts for many of our listeners. So yeah. with that, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Hendrik, for uh, making the time. That's all the time we have for uh, this episode. Thanks a lot for sharing your perspectives. Hope that... Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure to talk to you.
We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com.